You are listening to the Mary Jane Society Podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. Thank you for joining. I'm Pam Schmiel, and our guest today is Amy Larson. She is Chief Marketing Officer for Tilt. Amy shares her approach to marketing the numerous brands and partnerships in the Tilt portfolio. We also talk about their collaboration with the Shinnecock Indian Nation in New York and how it may set the standards for working with other Indian nations as part of their social equity initiatives. Let's meet Amy. So thank you, Amy, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Pam. Thank you. You now are the uh, marketing director for Tilt, uh, so you've moved positions. Well, we would love to start with, uh, if you could just give us an overview of your background and uh, tell us about you know, your, your new position, that would be great. Sure. No, thank you. Thank you. So, so I've been working in uh, PR and marketing for a little over 20 years. I start, got my start actually in the tourism and hospitality industries, which was, which was a lot of fun back, you know, before the first economic crash in the late 2000s, but it was a really fun place to be. And then, you know, in, in 2014, Colorado uh, passed adult use and began adult use sales of cannabis. Um, and really kind of my entree into the industry was through um, a cannabis tour company. The, the company itself provided tours, consumption tours um, for people to dispensaries and grows in Denver. Um, and they were looking for someone who knew the tourism industry. And it was a whole, it was a whole different uh, challenge trying to have that conversation uh, seven years ago, but, but it was fun and it really opened my eyes. And then um, in 2015, I was working at an agency and I actually stood up and launched and built a and grew our, our cannabis division out of that agency. It was fully integrated. So we did everything from, you know, brand development, strategy, architecture, um, public relations, website, we packaging, we did, we did a little bit of everything. Um, and then 2019, I was able to take a step away from the agency and I worked, um, um, I got to work full-time in cannabis um, because it was really where I decided that I that's where I wanted to spend my energy. It was a fun place to be. I love the people. I love the challenge. I um, lo I love the challenge of of educating people about what we had been lied to about cannabis for so long. It's amazing. Uh, it, it it really is. As a as a you know as a product of the dare generation and just say no. You know when when you look back and realize how much we were lied to about it. It's it was it was frustrating. Um, um, I joined Tilt in uh, June of this year. Um, I started as uh, I was working in uh, communications and operations, really working with a lot of our brand uh, partners and our corporate development team, which which I love to do. And um, I just I just finished my term as the chair of the National Cannabis Industry Association's Marketing and Advertising Committee. I worked on that committee for about four years, wrapped up my term as their chair in August. Um, and then, yeah, as um, uh, officially uh, today, today. <laughs> uh, December 1st, I was asked to step up and, and take over our, our marketing department. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to, to take on yet another challenge. Yeah, that's really exciting. So um, can you also just give us an overview of Tilt? Sure. So, so Tilt is, is a, is a multi-state operator. Um, we have 
Um, we're, we're really more um, at this point, kind of more B2B supply chain driven um, as a multi-state operator. And, and when I say that it's, um, you know, if you look at our divisions, um, our, our headquarters is actually in Phoenix and that's where our Jupiter um, vaporizer hardware business is located. And we're one of the largest distributors of C-cell technology. We also have um, do a lot of innovation and R&D out, out of our headquarters in Phoenix. And then we have plant touching operations in um, Pennsylvania and Ohio and Massachusetts. And Pennsylvania and Ohio are really um, cultivation, manufacturing, distribution. And in Massachusetts, we are fully vertically integrated uh, with two dispensaries now. Um, one dispensary, um, we are awaiting final inspection. Um, that's our Taunton dispensary uh, to, to transition or to, excuse me, to add adult use sales. And we were just, um, we just opened our second dispensary in Brockton, which is outside of Boston. And it, uh, we commenced sales there in early December and just began um, adult use sales in the last couple of weeks. So um, we're looking to add our third dispensary location in Massachusetts, which that's that's all we're allowed to add um, because of the, the limited license set up in Massachusetts. Um, and we also just announced a partnership with the Shinnecock Indian Nation in New York. So um, we will be expanding into New York um, as as that relationship matures in the next over the next year or so. Yes, I want to definitely talk about that, the Shinnecock Nation in a, in a minute. And so I just want to understand that tilt has asked partner brand partnerships where they don't own the brand but do they so but do they own the dispensaries or is that a similar uh, no so we we own our we own our dispensaries okay. um in massachusetts uh when we and and we also wholesale out of our cultivation facility to other uh dispensaries around um the state both mass in all three of our plant touching states um when we work with brand partners um, we, we partner with brands that are um, established in other markets and are looking to expand into the markets that we work in. So it's very much um, a kind of a, a licensing situation. So if we work with Old Pal, or we do work with Old Pal out of California, you know, we adhere to their SOPs and we um, you know, utilize our, our flower, our manufacturing, our team, and we um, then we wholesale their um, their products to to other dispensaries. So we've set that up um, very successfully with Her Highness um, and Old Pal and Arrow Brands, and um, we've announced 1906, and we're getting ready to launch that um, those brands in in our in our markets as well. Okay, so um, so basically, if they want to go into other states, you use your uh, cultivation and manufacturing facilities to produce their product. Yes, they they come to those states under our operating under our yeah, license. I get it. Okay, that's a good. That's a nothing's easy in cannabis, right? <laughs> right. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> but I do uh, I do see people, a lot of people now doing that method, but really just going to the growers. But you're bigger than just a grower facility. Yep. Obviously, you have yep. more to offer them. Um, but uh, as far as trying to expand to other states, uh, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, um, you know, also, it is, and it's expensive. It's very expensive. And so this way, you know, they've got a trusted partner. We can make sure that their products meet their brand standards, their standard, um, their SOPs. Customers, you know, will know what they're getting um, when they open that package. And 
Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's a much easier, quicker way to market for some of these brands and to go in, apply for a license, get a license, set up your own, you know, manufacturing, cultivation, manufacturing, processing. Um, and, and we've been incredibly successful and our, and our partners are amazing. And it's definitely one of our growth strategies moving forward. Right, right. Because we, there's still so many states and so many brands that you could bring in just to even the few states that yep. you have. Yeah. And yep. then also, do you, do you, um, do you produce and manufacture your own uh, product line? We absolutely do. So in Pennsylvania, the, the product lines are under uh, the Standard Farms brand. Um, and then in Massachusetts, we have our, you know, I think our, our house brands are Chroma and Slate. So yeah, so we, and we also do a lot of wholesale um, white labeling or not, we sell product that other um, companies then put into their products mm -hmm. um, on a wholesale side. So. What relationship do you have working with other brands as Tilt's marketing director? So how does that work when you're, how do you help them? How do you work together? <laughs> no, absolutely. And it's, it's one of the things I love and one of the, you know, as a marketing person, as a branding person, um, being able to main control, maintain control of your brand and making sure that, you know, people are talking about it the way you want them to talk about it and are selling it the way you want them to sell it is really, it, it's really, it's, it's really critically important for, for those of us who, who, <laughs> who kind of can't, you know, understand that, that importance. And so when we work with, um, with brands like that, they maintain, they come into the market and they maintain, you know, they, their own marketing teams, they hire their own brand ambassadors. We will co-op with them a lot on social media, on pop-ups, on, you know, things that we can, but they really get to maintain the authenticity and control of their brand in that market. So they can maintain control of that messaging. Now, you know, we love doing you know, events and partnerships and promotions and those types of things that, you know, are beneficial to both uh, their brand and our brand. Uh, but really, we let them maintain control of their marketing. Okay. Does Tilt buy dispensaries to support the brands? Is that part of it? Or it's not even a thought when why they're doing that? Like, no. Not right now. And we, and they know, you know, that, you know, we have, you know, in the States that we have, that we wholesale, you know, in, in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, they know that, you know, we have an existing wholesale sales team in place that has reach into the majority of the dispensaries in those markets. So it's not that we own those dispensaries. It's that we have relationships, very long established relationships from being in that community that then will help get their products onto shelves throughout the market. In Massachusetts, of course, they get to benefit both ways, one from our wholesale team, but then also from being on the shelves of our dispensaries. At the moment, and I say at the moment because you never, it's cannabis, we never know when things change, Yeah. but at the moment, tilt strategy is not to become the next true leaf, cure leaf, you know, having hundreds of dispensary locations because we, because we pride ourselves on being a, a B2B, like kind of full supply chain partner to both, you know, the MSOs that own all those dispensaries, but then also these brands and helping them to expand. Okay, great. Um, so, so basically, your job, like as the marketing director, is to to uh, really focus on your brands, the tilt brands, and the dispensaries, and the I guess cultivation facilities and stuff like that. Yep. 
And yeah. And so you have to have a very, you know, uh, it's, there's different mindsets when we're talking about how do you sell B2B vaporizer hardware versus how are we making sure that we're selling through, you know, a direct B2C direct to consumer, but, you know, dispensary t- uh, strategy is a lot different than, you know, than selling a, a direct B2B strategy. But then also, um, Pam, to your point, working to maintain, establish and maintain the Tilt brand and, you know, our brand awareness and thought leadership and expertise. So I work, you know, very closely with our communications team and our social media and, you know, our our CEO and speaking at panels and conferences. So it's a, there's my, my approach to marketing is always understand what your goal is, then figure out what your strategy is. And then you put the tactics in place to support that. And so each business division is going to have different tactics. What's going to work for our Commonwealth Alternative Care uh, dispensaries in Massachusetts is not remotely what we're going to want to do for Jupiter um, to sell B two B wholesale hardware. So I guess uh, so. How do you how do you how do you manage all that? Like all those different things. <laughs> it's a um, well, you know, twenty years of working in an agency comes in really helpful at this point hmm. because. That's how that's how I look at our internal marketing department is we are an agency and each of our business divisions are our clients. And just as it would be as at an agency, you know, each client is going to have different budgets, different goals, different objectives, different, you know, uh, KPIs that we need to hit. And so they're all going to need different strategies and tactics and team members to to bring that to life. Mm-hmm. And that's really my, um, that's really kind of my approach to making it work. There's not a one size fits all. There's definitely not a one size fits all in cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when we're working across these different divisions, that's, you know, a, a way to maximize efficiency and maximize the results. As a marketer, I, I I love talking to other marketers and just hear how you know they do things. And so to me, that this conversation is so interesting. How do you market uh, brands since we're all in these siloed states yep. and you can't like you would normally market a product nationwide? How do you zone in on the different states and? Um, and, and, and also prepare for a national rollout in the meantime, when it comes down the road, but like, what's your focus? Yeah. So, so when we're talking, um, you know, when we're talking marketing state by state, there are, as you know, Pam, there are different regulations, there are different rules, um, different things you can say in every market. And so really when we, we want to get tactical and talk about what we can do in Massachusetts, now that we have an adult use license and you know the Massachusetts market is adult use and not just medical and that's that's a big difference and that's a big difference that people don't always correlate you know we get used to living in Colorado California you know Washington Oregon places that have had adult use markets for a long time we forget that markets like Pennsylvania Ohio medical markets are much more restrictive about what you can and can't do and what you can and can't say. For example, in Pennsylvania, you can't even use the word cannabis anymore. It has to be medical marijuana on any sales and marketing materials. Um, In Ohio, uh, every single thing has to be approved, including every social media post has to be approved by the Department of Health in Ohio before you can post it. So what? Yeah. Yeah. So you have to submit every yep. social media post. Yep, for Ohio. That's impossible. Yeah, it, it 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 well, it really kind of um, it kind of ties your hands, but it also 
you know, it makes you realize where you need to invest in your team, right? If you're going to have to submit every single, you know, social media post to the Department of Health in Ohio to get approved, uh, then you better have a pretty deep social media team who can create that content, you know, have enough content in the queue that you're waiting for some to get approved. And then you've got more ready to come in and get approved. Um, you know, there are, there are things that, you know, in, in, if we want to talk about Massachusetts, you know, we've got a little more leeway in Massachusetts. We can do out of home. We have billboards running. You can do um, geo-targeted ads to hit consumers. Uh, one of the things that as, um, you know, as someone who hates getting uh, sale text messages personally that I've had to accept over the past couple of years is that SMS text messaging is, has huge ROI in the cannabis industry and is hugely successful when we're talking to consumers um, and sending out sales. Um, so there are, there are tactical ways that you can get around it. Um, when I, um, you know, talk, you know, generically about marketing tactics, um, you know, speaking on other panels and presentations is, you know, we're so ingrained that everything has to be digital and track and trackable. And there are a lot of platforms out there now that have made that a lot easier. And we can do more now than we used to be able to do just two or three years ago. You can run a Google AdWords campaign. You can do, um, you know, have an SMS, SEM campaign. There are things that you can do. You still can't advertise on Facebook and Instagram, but I always encourage people to think a little bit old school. Um, radio, people are in their cars. You know, I know here in Denver, um, some of the hip hop stations, if you'll, you'll hear ads for dispensaries running, um, you know, between 9am and, and 3pm, because they can guarantee that most of their audience is, is going to be over 21 at that point, because everybody else is in school. Right. Mm. Um, right. So, you know, we also there, I've heard great success from people doing um, direct mailers, which is really? totally old school. And, you know, you have to get approval from your local, you know, postmaster who's going to be sending it out. But yeah, you can tar zip code target your demographics. And if you want to track that, say, bring this back in, put a coupon code on it, put some, you know, there, there are ways to be um, effective without having to rely on, on AdWords, on Facebook, on social media, you know. But I love your advice about going back to old school and direct yep. marketing, especially when you're trying to be local in yep. a state or, you know, even in a town, because it, like in Massachusetts, I know some towns, you know, there's some strict rules in some of those towns about what you can or cannot do. Yep. And, and that's, and the compliance piece of it is, more challenging than I think anybody realizes until they get into it. I mean, you've got what you can and can't do at a national level, you know, you've mm -hmm. got what you can and can't do at a state level. And it goes all the way down to, you know, counties opting out and cities and towns having different ordinances. Right. You know, here in, in, in Colorado, I, people are shocked when I say this, you know, we've had, we have one of the oldest adult use markets, less than half of the counties in the state actually have either medical or adult use retail sales. The county that I live in, one of the biggest counties in the state is a dry county. I have to drive five miles up the road into a different county and guess who gets my tax dollars? Mm, yeah, oh, please. That's, so, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> but, but it's, 
you know, the, the fact that, you know, it's still very much a local level approval, local level, you know, restriction industry that, you know, there's so many layers of compliance that you have to, that you have to play within, but there right. are ways to do it. There are and, ways. And when you were mentioning a uh, geo-targeted ads, um, you could trick Google ads, but how about just programmatic ad advertising instead of doing the Google ads? Like, yep. You can do you can do programmatic ads. That's what I was saying. There are there are platforms out there now, oh. um, and there are there are providers out there now. You know, um, a couple of the biggest ones that you know I I've known and have worked with. Um, one is called Surfside. One is called SafeReach. They both offer you know programmatic ads that are um, that you can target different consumers, but it's geo targeted. You can make sure that they're twenty one plus. You can so you can serve up programmatic ads um, that way. The number of on, online um, publications or online um, websites, news outlets, that kind of stuff that are accepting it now, um, both programmatic and retargeting um, mm -hmm. is, is growing you know, day by day, especially as these markets unfold and, and they're losing revenue from their traditional businesses. Right, so, right. Can, you know, cannabis has money, has at least some money to spend, what 280E is not sucking up. You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Another conversation. <laughs> Another conversation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what do you see as the biggest obstacle for brands to generate sales? The biggest obstacle really is um, it's their ability or lack of ability to get directly in front of consumers. And, you know, my answer, Pam, might have been different two years ago. But with COVID now and shutting things down and, you know, I think, unfortunately, we may be headed back towards some of that this winter. I hope not. But, you know, the, you know, it used to be, um, you know, brands would come in and they'd have pop-up events. They'd have patient education events, consumer events, that kind of stuff in, you know, in dispensaries and in, you know, events where they could connect directly with consumers with with patients and a lot of that has been restricted now especially because of covid and people being indoors and and i for you know cannabis with its with its you know the roots and you know federal illegality has always been a a network of who you know and who you trust and you know, hey, you trust John. Hey, I trust John. John, John can get you good product and John's not going to rat you out. And John's not, you know, based on some of that illicit traditional market um, uh, danger and, and, you know, scare that was out there, mm. there's still a lot of distrust um, in, in more traditional markets. And so there's, it's very much a, it's very much driven by who you know, what products you like. If I know you and I trust you and you say this product's good, or you say I can trust this product, then I'm going to trust you to trust that and trust that product. There's still a lot of that kind of networking and word of mouth that I think this industry is very reliant on and will continue to be. It's going to be a long time before we outgrow that, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of products people have to learn about and be able to walk into a dispensary and ask for that specific product. Um, and and people, I think, are also intimidated. People oh, yeah. who don't know and who are looking to try are very intimidated to walk into a dispensary and not know what to ask and not know, you know, what they should what? take. And yeah, 
you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, even if you don't have a medical card, a lot, the big majority of people who are coming to cannabis or are coming back to cannabis are consumers who are looking for, you know, are, are using it for health and wellness reasons, mm-hmm. pain relief, stress relief, um, sleeplessness. That's what people are, are turning to cannabis for as an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, that's, that's a little bit of a, a, a personal opinion, anecdote, you know, when I, talk I to people, but I think, you know, I've seen those statistics. That seems to be the top list of the people from the yep. data that's out there. You know, the dispensary layouts are not like typical retail stores where you browse and, you know, you pick things up and you look, you know, this. And I've heard that some brands are even um, uh, giving commission to bud tenders to push their products more, which seems like, ugh, you know, that's just a whole nother road to go down. Um, it, it is, and it's and it's happening. And I think um, from a, if we're talking an adult use product, I don't, I, I don't, you know, it, it kind of is what it is. I think that that happens, you know, okay. if you look in, you know, you look in liquor stores, you look in other, you know, pop-ups, brands pay a premium to be on the end cap, brands pay, you know, to get customer attention. When we're talking a medical um, product or a medical use state only, I personally, sorry if this offends anybody out there, but that feels icky to me to pay commission, you know, to incentivize bud tenders to tell people like what kind of medicine to choose. And yeah. I think, and I know, I, I know personally for a fact, you know, from talking to our teams in, in Massachusetts that, you know, we've been approached by companies, oh, hey, here's this incentive program until we go adult, you know, we're like full adult use, like we're, that's, our, our team, our team is of that same thing. You know, cannabis is for medical marijuana medical cannabis is medicine. And it's not, it, it's, it, that just feels too. It feels right. Too it feels like down the road, you could get pharma. in trouble. Right. Big pharma. I was going to say, it sounds like down the road, you could almost get in trouble for that. Yeah. You know, yeah. why would you want, you know, there's, there has to be some, I, my, you know, this may be a little naive of me, but I've worked in this industry for seven years. And I feel like, you know, there are people who are in this industry because they understand the benefits of the plant, because, you know, we know it's saved lives. It's gotten people out, out of addiction. You know, it's made, you know, life wellness so much better, quality of life so much better. And I think there are a lot of people who that's why they were drawn into this industry. And that's why they are they are bud tenders and they were bud tenders, you know, from a medical perspective, long before adult use came on to the radar screen for the state that they're working in. And so I think that they're at its core. I think there is a commitment to that wellness and to a little bit of the sacredness of the plant and to, and, you know, I, you know, I, I there, I, do people want to use cannabis to get high? Absolutely. I, you know, and no judgment there, like mm-hmm. use it for what you want to use it for. We don't, we don't judge people who go out and get drunk. Right. I mean, we do if that's why you do all that every day. <laughs> yeah, <It's> right. Like, <laughs> it's a problem. Friday night, you want to go have a few drinks and get drunk. That's fine. It yeah. should be the same. It should be the same for cannabis. You normalize it eventually. Yes. Yeah, it's normalizing it. Um, okay. I, I think we talked about are there any roadblocks you really see in the various states that are specific to those states? Or, I mean, I, you kind of touched base on that, I guess. A little, a little bit, bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it really, it really is, it does go state by state and it depends on, you know, the Department of Health. We were um, 
because we were launching and I'll, and I'll share just this one, you know, we're working with old pal and their whole brand is based on shareable cannabis. Well, when we were selling just to medical markets uh, or, you know, in, in Massachusetts, not all of the dispensaries that we sell into are adult use. Some of them are just still medical. So you, and we can't say that we're sharing medicine, mm. right? Mm. So considering how that impacts your brand, your messaging, your packaging, packaging and labeling is a whole other, you know, piece to the puzzle. I, if anybody's making money in this industry right now, it's sticker label maker. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, so, so there are some of those types of considerations. And then, you know, as brands do look to expand, they should know what form factors are allowed in the states that they're looking mm. to expand into. Like Ohio, I think you can have a, a dissolvable tablet now, but you can't have a swallowable tablet and it's different than a pill or a cat. It's, there's some, there's some really weird, some really yeah. weird tablets out there that are like, oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, Jeez, it's crazy. Uh, not for the faint-hearted to no. launch a product in this marketplace. Nope. Um, so let's talk about the Shinnecock uh, Indian Nation sure. that your your uh, recent partnership with uh, Tilt, and um, also is this part of a social equity initiative? Is 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 it that you? Is this part of your social equity initiative? If you if you have one, I assume. Yeah. So. So yes, so to start, um, our partnership with the Shinnecock is one that was really designed um, with a true, you know, social equity um, outcome um, at the heart of it. And what makes this this partnership so much different than anything else out there is that, you know, Tilt is investing a lot of um, the upfront costs. We're building out the cultivation the facility, the dispensary, the wellness lounge. We are bringing in our cannabis and man, you know, cannabis operational management expertise um, to the tribe, um, and we'll be edu helping educate and help train and help staff um, the tribe there. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Shinnecock maintain ownership of this of the business. So you know we have, I believe, the partnership agreement. The initial term is for for nine years. It's kind of, it's really just kind of a, you know, think about it a little bit as it's a big, it's a big mortgage investment. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I guess like a franchising type model. Similar? Not not at this point. Um, at this point, it's just this one location, and and the what makes it um, so impactful is that a we're we're driving jobs we're building businesses we're driving long term um economic impact for for this tribe that has been you know has seen their lands eaten up and you know when you're in the in the hamptons um you know they've they've watched their their way of life slowly be be stolen from them uh. and and it's we now have the opportunity to make like long, help them create long lasting economic impact through, you know, revenue and job growth and training and education and, and, you know, and support local people, local um, people and local businesses, you know, so it's, there's, a, there's a lot of, a lot of layers to, to the relationship, but at the end of the day, you know, the Shinnecock will maintain ownership of this business, you know, Tilt will get repaid the loan, but the Shinnecock maintain ownership of this business. And so it's not like a lot of other, you know, MSOs where, or no, I, I shouldn't say MSOs, a lot of other social equity 
um, partnerships that are set up that really in the long run, it's kind of somebody doing a backway deal to take advantage of social equity applicants just to cut the line. And then, you know, unfortunately, we see a lot of social equity licensees and applicants kind of wash out of the program because they weren't trained certified with the training, the finances and, and those kinds of things. And so this is this deal, what this partnership was designed to create something that was truly socially equitable, that was a true partnership. And, you know, again, a little uh, this we have to we have to get this one, you know, kind of up and running first. But I do think um, ultimately taking this type of a relationship to other other tribes, um, I think it would be a, a, a big part of what Tilt's overall social equity um, plan is. And we are in the process of, you know, full transparency of building up what our CSR program needs to look like, how, you know, how we want to, um, to, to further what we're doing from a social equity perspective. Um, we, we don't have it nailed down. Tilt, um, you know, has kind of gone, undergone a huge, um, you know, management shift and, and uh, divisional shift over the last 18 months or two years. So we're, we've got a great foundation in place now, a great team in place now, and we're now in a position where we can start to make those really meaningful, impactful decisions of how we want to move forward and not just be virtue signaling. I, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of different social equity programs around the country, and I've written about it and interviewed some people. And, it, you know, it looked very dismal um, because a lot of people, social equity entrepreneurs are entering it um, without any business experience, you know, and, and they're going to fail. You can give them all the grants that you want, you know, you can give them loans and, you know, things like that. But if they, you know, especially in this industry, if they don't have the know-how or the hand-holding like well, you guys are doing, you need the hand-holding. That yeah. is what is going to get someone to succeed. And I guess that's what I meant by a franchise model. You're giving them the blueprint, uh, the playbook to do it. But not only that, bigger than a, more than a franchise, is your hand-holding and you're going in there and setting it up. And you both are benefiting, which is fantastic. You both should. And that's been a big conversation also is like, how do these MSOs are trying to have these social equity programs? But, you know, but again, it's just this training and okay, here you go, go off. Here's your accelerator incubator, go off and do it. It's just not going to work, but you can't expect MSOs to or big companies to have that burden also, because that's a big burden. So you guys have figured out the business model to really make it happen and set them up for life, whether you continue on with them or they, after the nine years they go on, I, it's, it's, it's a great model. It is. And I, and I don't, I, I just, I wanted to add one thing. I don't want to downplay the importance of, you know, the Shinnecock's historic relationship with this plant as being a sacred medicine and their respect for the plant and the area and their land that I think, you know, we talk about environmental sustainability and stewardship and cannabis and how, you know, a, a lot in part due to, it, to the regulations that have been put in place by people who don't know any better and by, you know, trying to create child safety, we overlook, you know, we, we don't have time to stop and think about the sacredness of this plant to certain people. And so bringing that perspective and the historic, you know, relationship with it and with the land and, you know, that's, 
that's a huge piece of this relationship too. Yeah. Oh, and it'll just hopefully one day all blend together across the country with other, you know, Indian nations. And also, you know, there are poor Indian nations are notoriously poor and they could use the revenue. It's just, yep. it's a really, however you stumbled upon that, that is such a <laughs> great start. I was, when I, it, I had heard about it once I started, you know, with Tilt this summer and then working to kind of help get, you know, even just the public facing announcement across the line and having gotten to work with the woman who's going to be um, the managing director of the dispensary over the past few months. It's just, it's one of those things that just ignites your passion in, in this industry and for, for, you know, making you know, helping to, to make a change. And, you know, one of the thing, reasons I got into this industry was because, A, how often do you get to sit on the front end of an industry being reborn, uh, right? It's so much, it's such a fun place to be, but to do something that has, and to be part of something that has truly made a difference to so many people's lives, that is so, that just, it, it makes me excited, you know, to get up and, and to work in this industry every day. Me too. I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. So, um, okay, so great. So I think our last question is, um, let's wrap up on a personal <laughs> note. Um, so I know that you have two teenage children yeah. that you and your husband are raising in Colorado. Um, and since Colorado has been, you know, cannabis normalized, you know, much longer than the rest of the country, is there a stigma that you face as being a mom who partakes or works in cannabis? Like no, I'm Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's kind of, it's different to think about, you know, when I was talking earlier about how, you know, only half of Colorado counties have even, you know, allowed medical retail, much less adult use retail. um, There's, there's very much a stigma, A, around um, being a mom in working in cannabis. Um, There's, stigma around being a mom and using cannabis. Um, I know, Pam, when you and I chatted, I am quite literally a suburban soccer mom. My daughter plays soccer. Um, I have, you know, so I, I, I am not really the, who you would typically think of as someone working either in cannabis or someone who partakes in cannabis. And it's, it's the, the best thing that we can do is to begin to normalize it. Um, I actually found a woman um, on Instagram. Uh, anybody who's listening, you want to go find her merch. Her her Instagram handles Blunt Blowing Mama, and I wear her shirts to all of the conferences that I go to. And it's um, my fa- the one I had. I was just at. Um, I just came back from MJ BizCon and MJ Unpacked, and it was moms who smoke weed get shit done. And really, and the looks that you get, and the people who are like. It, it, it really, I wear it to bring attention to the fact that, no, I don't look like your typical cannabis mom. I don't, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I white blonde hair, soccer, suburban soccer mom. I, I don't. Well, and let's, let's add this piece to it, Pam. My husband's a police officer. That's funny. So you want to talk about the about that combination. Of, <laughs> of stigma that runs, you know, that we work with it's, it is what it is, but Right. And, and it's, it's really funny. Um, you know, everybody he works with knows the industry that I work in. They joke, 
they joke and call me the drug czar. And I'm like, you guys, I'm, I'm on the wrong end of the plant. I have a brown thumb. But you know, it's, it's funny to me, like whenever I wear any kind of hat or shirt, and you know, even if it's not as in your face as moms who smoke weed get shit done, you know, you get looks, you get a lot of dirty looks from people that I use cannabis, which is a much healthier way to de-stress, eliminate pain relief or eliminate, eliminate pain, um, get some sleep at night. You know, it's, we're getting there, but yes, there's definitely still a lot of, a lot of stigma out there. So if that's happening in Colorado, which has been normalized for so long, it seems normal there. Can you imagine what other? Oh, when I go visit family in Kansas, it's, and that's when I say, you know, those of us who've lived and worked in who've lived in states where it's been legalized for years or have, you know, take it a step further, work in, it, have worked in this industry, we're used to seeing it. We very much take for granted that everybody has done the research and knows what we know and feels the same way about it. And even as we see more states come online from a medical perspective or adult use, people, you know, will vote for it. But a lot of times people vote for it because they mm, see the tax yeah. dollar implications not necessarily because they've educated themselves on the benefits of cannabis. Um, so yeah, so there's still, there's still a lot of stigma to overcome. And the, the best way to do it is to talk about it and to normalize it and, you know, and, and to educate. get out there. Yeah. yeah, That's what we do. Yeah, yeah it's educate. true. And if you're experiencing that in Colorado, we have a, we have a long way to go. Oh, yeah. As moms, we give each other so much crap. We are so judgmental to each other as a whole. I imagine adding cannabis use into that, you know? Right. And also, I mean, in the other states, you risk having your children taken away. Yeah. I mean, you could, that is against the law. You yeah. could, you could, that is a risk. It still seems like you have to be a little, you know, a little careful, even in the legal states, because you never know who's, you know, who's, which nosy Karen is going <laughs> to file a complaint. Right, right, exactly. Well, I guess that ends the, the, the interview. I really appreciate, again, had a great time talking to you. Wish you the best of luck. I think you have an exciting job and uh, an exciting company, and I especially love this new business format for the social your social equity. I think that's going to roll out, and you're going to make a big, big impact on the Indian nations across the United States. I, I really believe that because I, this is that's the solution to helping people get off the ground. So thank yeah, you so much again. Happy to be on sometime again in the future as things change and. Perfect. And always happy to chat with you. So thank, thank you. you so much, Pam. Thanks, Amy. Okay, talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.